It's 5 p.m. on Monday, August the 23rd, 2010. PC John Gallagher is out on foot patrol in Pimlico, a well-to-do area of London sandwiched between Belgravia and Westminster. The evening is pleasantly warm. The streets are filling up with the first wave of commuters heading home via nearby Victoria Station. Many of them are workers from the various government offices in the neighborhood. Like the distinctive multi-tiered building on the Albert Embankment, just across Foxhall Bridge. It looks like a futuristic Aztec temple, but it's actually the home of the Secret Intelligence Service, also known as MI6. The building is oddly conspicuous for an organization that operates in the shadows. Gallagher knows these long, wide streets well. There's something slightly impersonal about the high Georgian buildings with their ornate entrances and first-floor balconies. Their honey-colored facades ooze affluence, but give little indication of what goes on behind the discreetly closed front doors. Gallagher keeps his pace steady and unhurried. His expression is relaxed, approachable, but his senses remain alert. Suddenly a call comes in from the control room. Gallagher is instructed to check up on a 31-year-old man called Gareth Williams. Gareth failed to turn up for work last week, and no one has seen or heard from him for about eight days. His family is concerned, as are the man's colleagues. There's a moment's pause before the voice on the other end of his police radio warns PC Gallagher there's something else he ought to know. Gareth Williams works for MI6. Unable to get any response when he buzzes Gareth's flat, PC Gallagher calls at the letting agency that holds the keys for the building. The first thing that hits Gallagher as he opens the door is a waft of stifling hot air. That's strange, he thinks, leaving the heating on in the middle of summer. All the windows are closed, with the curtains drawn. The place is baking like an oven. Gallagher's attention is first drawn to a woman's wig hanging off the back of one of the chairs. The wig is a zingy orange color, the kind you might wear for fancy dress or a fun night out. To PC Gallagher, it seems incongruous. Other than that, the flat is exceptionally tidy, spotless even. The flat is on two levels. After checking this floor is clear, he makes his way upstairs. He enters a bedroom and spots a crumpled bathrobe on the floor near the door to the ensuite bathroom, as if someone had thrown it off before going in. Stepping over it, he enters the bathroom. The first thing he sees is a red bag in the bath, a North Face branded hole door. Gallagher walks over to get a closer look. The bag is tightly packed. The two zips have been pulled together and closed with a padlock. PC Gallagher's curiosity is getting the better of him. He picks the bag up by the handles to get a feel for what might be inside it. There's quite a weight to it. He only manages to lift it about six or seven inches. Disturbing the bag causes a red liquid to drip out of the bottom. But that's not all. PC Gallagher's nostrils are suddenly assailed by an unmistakable smell. The stench 
of decomposing flesh. I'm John Hopkins, and welcome to Scotland Yard Confidential, the show where we delve into the files of London's legendary Criminal Investigation Department. You'll be right there alongside investigators as they search for clues, interrogate suspects, and sort the truth from the lies. There will be twists and turns along the way. Sometimes the trail will run cold. Sometimes it will be a race against time. We'll rub shoulders with notorious gangsters, sit down with informants, and come face to face with cold-blooded murderers. As we follow in the footsteps of some of the greatest detectives in history. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. PC Gallagher places the bag back down gingerly and radios in for assistance. Detective Sergeant Paul Colgan is soon on the scene. Colgan cuts open the hold-all, revealing the naked body of an adult male in an advanced state of decay. The body is so contorted that at first Colgan thinks the arms and legs have been cut off. But no, the arms are tightly tucked in and the legs pulled up in the fetal position. The identity of the dead man will later be confirmed as Gareth Williams, the missing MI6 agent. But the mystery of how he came to be inside the holdall will not be so easily resolved. There's no sign of a struggle. Either Gareth got into the bag willingly, or he was drugged, or possibly already dead, when he was put in there. One thing seems obvious. Someone else must surely have closed and padlocked that bag. The two officers can see no evidence of a break-in or robbery. If there was someone else involved, it looks like Gareth let them in, which suggests they were known to him. Given the dead man's occupation, the possibility that this may have been a professional hit can't be ruled out. PC Gallagher observes to his colleague that it looks like a neat job. Just as he's mulling this over, the flat is invaded by a unit of unfamiliar officers. They are grim-faced and tense, almost hostile in their body language. Spooks, thinks PC Gallagher. We'll take it from here, Gallagher and Colgan are told. Their part in the investigation is over. News of Gareth Williams' death and the mysterious circumstances surrounding it have sent shockwaves throughout Whitehall. Within the security services themselves, the mood is one of panic. We will never know what the agents who dismiss Gallagher and Colgan are looking for, or if they find it. 
Perhaps they're genuinely trying to find evidence that would help to solve the mystery of Gareth's death. But they may just as easily be removing evidence. Or even planting it. What we do know is that detectives from Scotland Yard's Homicide and Serious Crime Command are forced to wait until the agents have finished their sweep of the flat before they are allowed in. And by the time the Yard's scene of crime investigators get to do their job, the place is, forensically speaking, remarkably clean. The front door has also been removed and taken away. Not surprisingly, it isn't long before tensions emerge between the security services and the police. The way Scotland Yard sees it, their job is simple. To investigate the sudden death and possible murder of Gareth Williams. For the spies, nothing is ever that simple. Especially when matters of national security are involved. The police investigation is led by Detective Chief Inspector Jackie Sabir of Scotland Yard's Homicide and Serious Crime Command. Sabir entered the Metropolitan Police Force in 1992 after graduating from Cambridge University. Exceptionally bright and ambitious to match, she spent most of her career to date as a murder detective, moving swiftly up the ranks. She's part of a new generation of female senior police officers who refuse to see their gender as any obstacle to their progress. Her fictional role model may well have been DCI Jane Tennyson, played by Helen Mirren in the hit TV show Prime Suspect. Closer to home, a real-life role model is Cressida Dick, who by 2010 had become the first woman to reach the rank of Assistant Commissioner. In 2017, Dick will become the first ever female Commissioner of the Met. By 2010, 23% of the Met officers are women, slightly below the national average of 25%. But the proportion of women in senior ranks, such as Chief Inspector and above, is much lower than that, around 14% nationally. According to the stats, Jackie Sabir is an exceptional officer. She will need all her considerable skills and experience for what will prove to be the most challenging case of her career. The terms of the investigation are set by protocol. Sabir's team is not allowed direct access to anyone at MI6. They're not allowed to know what Gareth was working on. Neither are they given access to any of his colleagues. They can't ask them questions. And they can't take sworn statements. In other words, they're prevented from examining a hugely important set of witnesses in the way that any detective would expect when investigating a murder. Crucially, they can't look these witnesses in the eye and make a call on whether they're telling the truth. Instead, they have to submit their questions to another branch of the Met, called SO15, whose officers have a higher security clearance. SO15 officers then take those questions to MI6, where they sit down with the individuals concerned in the presence of their line managers. Having your boss present when you're interviewed by the police may not be the best way to encourage full and frank disclosure. Most bizarrely of all, the SO15 officers don't make a verbatim record of the answers. They write up their notes after the interviews and then pass these anonymized notes back to Sabir's team. 
In their role as information conduits, the SO-15 go-betweens have the power to control what is passed on. Important details may be lost, nuances missed. It may not be deliberate, it's just what happens when communication is at one remove. But DCI Sabir is frustrating and time-consuming. Naturally, she would prefer primary access to the witnesses. But she accepts that this is the way it has to be done. Publicly, at least, she says she has faith in the SO-15 officers. With one line of inquiry effectively blocked, DCI Sabir turns to the public for information. She appeals for anyone who might have seen or had contact with Gareth Williams between the 11th and the 23rd of August to come forward. To jog people's memories, detectives release images taken from CCTV footage showing Gareth in the days before his death. One frame, date-stamped Sunday, August the 15th, shows Gareth wearing a red T-shirt, beige chinos and white trainers as he goes shopping in Knightsbridge. From his card transactions, detectives are able to track his movements that day. He drew cash from an ATM outside Harrods before calling into the famous department store to purchase some cakes from the food hall. He also picked up a couple of peppered steaks. That Sunday, the weather was hot and humid. In the images, Gareth appears relaxed, a young man enjoying the last day of his annual leave. He's recently returned from a trip to America and is due back in the office the following morning. But when Gareth goes into 36 Alderney Street later, it will be for the last time. And what happens to him after he closes the door to his flat remains a mystery. Police ask for information concerning a Mediterranean-looking couple, a man and woman in their 30s, who were seen entering the communal area of Gareth's block one evening in June or July. None of his neighbours remember buzzing them in or know who they are, so the assumption is that they had come to see Gareth. Efits of the couple are released. Meanwhile, an autopsy is unable to establish any obvious cause of death. Toxicology examinations are inconclusive, revealing no trace of alcohol or drugs, whether medicinal or recreational. There's no sign that Gareth has been poisoned either. One problem for the pathologists is the length of time between Gareth's death, believed to have occurred in the early hours of Monday, August the 16th, and his body being found on the 23rd. All that time, the heating in the flat was on full blast, which accelerated decomposition, making it harder for any meaningful tests to be carried out. So far, DCI Sabir has a lot of questions, but few answers. To fill in the gaps, she turns to Gareth's family. Gareth's hometown is the seaside village of Valley, on the island of Anglesey in Wales. With a population of just 2,361, it's a close-knit community. For example, Gareth's grandfather, John Hughes, lives just around the corner from Gareth's parents, Ellen and Ian. Valley is the kind of place where everyone knows everyone. It's a world away from London, the big, impersonal city where no matter how physically close your neighbours may be, they are always strangers to you even people who live in the same house or work at the same office. 
It must have been a difficult adjustment to make. It's possible that Gareth felt isolated in London, especially given the nature of his work. Coming home to Anglesey must have felt strange too. His family, friends and neighbours would have had questions about how he's getting on. Questions which they have learnt not to ask. Gareth's uncle, William Hughes, is quoted as saying, Some things we could not know. Perhaps this kind of environment is the perfect training ground for a spy. With everyone so eager to know your business, you grow up learning to hold on to your secrets, preserving a part of you that no one will ever know. When Gareth's body is discovered, his parents are out of the country. And so the first to hear the news is Grandpa John, who is so shocked that he falls over and has to be taken to hospital. For Uncle William, the reaction is one of disbelief. Gareth, dead? Surely not. Gareth's sister, Kerry, a physiotherapist, tells detectives of the last time she saw her brother alive. In June, Gareth took her and her husband, Dr. Chris Subb, to tea at the Ritz to celebrate their second wedding anniversary. Gareth had been in good spirits. The three of them had spent the afternoon laughing and joking. Since then, Kerry had been in touch with her brother regularly over the phone, though the last time she'd been able to get through to him was August the 11th. Detectives learned that Gareth had been on secondment to MI6 from GCHQ, the government's top-secret listening station based in Cheltenham. It was meant to be a three-year term, but Gareth wasn't happy at MI6. According to Kerry, he disliked the macho office culture. She had the impression there had been some friction there. And so Gareth was planning to cut short his time at MI6 and move back to Cheltenham at the beginning of September. So what was it that Gareth did, exactly? This is a question that Kerry can't answer. She can only tell the police about the Gareth she knew. She describes him as a generous, loving brother and insists that they were close. They had the kind of relationship where he could tell her anything. She recalls how Gareth had been an exceptionally bright pupil at primary school in Hollyhead. His talent for maths had been spotted in early age. He passed his maths GCSE at 10, six years before most students take it. Gareth was also into computers. A lot of teenage boys are, of course, but Gareth was on another level. He got straight A's in A-level maths and computer science at the age of 13, taking these exams five years earlier than most people. While still at secondary school, he started attending Bangor University on a part-time basis. He was just 17 when he graduated with a first-class degree in mathematics. One of his maths teachers describes him as having the fastest brain I have ever met. But did his extraordinary mind isolate Gareth from his peers? It can't have been easy to make friends at school, always being known as the clever kid. It didn't help either that he had to spend part of his time commuting to Bangor for lectures. And at the university, he was so much younger than all the other students. But Carrie plays down this picture of her brother as a geeky loner. She points out that Gareth was sporty too, a super fit athlete 
who loved outdoor pursuits such as rock climbing and fell running. He was also a competitive cyclist and a keen member of Holyhead Cycling Club, just like their father. In 1997, the age of 18, Gareth begins a PhD in computer science at Manchester University. His thesis is about computer games, a subject close to his heart. Gareth is an expert player with a formidable online reputation. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Three years later, when Gareth is 21, it's thought to be his online gaming skills that bring him to the attention of the British security services. Gareth is recruited to GCHQ and begins working there in 2001. Finally, perhaps, he's found his tribe. And the work suits him. It involves intercepting and analyzing electronic communications from around the world and allows him to show off his advanced math skills. Better still, he gets to play with some amazing tech. More specifically, given his skill set, it seems likely that Gareth's work was in the field of cryptography and cryptoanalysis, meaning he was both a code breaker and a code maker, able to work both in cyber protection and cyber infiltration. All this is useful background for the investigation. But DCI Sabir and her team want to know more about Gareth's personal life. Did he have a girlfriend, for example? No. Not as far as his sister Kerry knows. So how does she explain the £20,000 worth of women's clothes that police have found in Gareth's flat? It's all expensive designer gear, with labels like Stella McCartney, Christopher Kane and Louboutin. There are clothes, shoes, wigs and even makeup. Most of it's still in its original packaging. Police recover receipts that show Gareth has been buying the clothes over a two-year period. At just five feet eight inches and with a slim figure, it's just possible that Gareth could have squeezed into the clothes. Maybe the shoes too at a pinch, though they would have fit his sister Kerry more comfortably. But the thing is, as far as the police can tell, none of it has ever been worn. Kerry believes that the clothes were bought as gifts, either for herself or some of Gareth's female friends. One of those is Sean Lloyd-Jones, a fashion stylist he'd known since childhood. Sean explains, He bought me a high-end Balenciaga top, a Gucci bag, a Mulberry bag, and Armani fur. He did the same for his sister. I truly believe that Kerry and I were going to receive the clothing. We received so many things from him, that wouldn't have been strange. To Kerry, it's more proof of her brother's generosity. This doesn't stop the rumors circulating. In December 2010, several newspapers report that shortly before his death, 
Gareth went to a performance by drag artist Johnny Wu at the Bistrotech Club in East London. This is somehow linked to the women's clothes found in his flat. It's also claimed that his internet browsing history indicated he had visited bondage-related websites. A possible sighting of Gareth at a gay bar in the Vauxhall area is also considered newsworthy. The Sun newspaper joined the dots for its readers. Murdered MI6 worker Gareth Williams was a secret transvestite who may have been killed by a gay lover. Some of the rumours reported go further than any evidence the police have found. It is said that cocaine, gay pornography, S&M paraphernalia were found at Gareth's flat and that he frequently paid for male escorts. None of this is true. In fact, as one detective puts it, this man didn't really even drink. To Gareth's family and friends, it looks as if someone is deliberately leaking this information to smear his name. But who? Their conclusion is that the security services are trying to create a narrative designed to deflect suspicion from themselves. Naturally, DCI Sabir doesn't condone the reporting of outright lies. However, she defends the release of embarrassing, hurtful and distressing details on the grounds that they may prompt someone to come forward. Perhaps because Sabir has hit a brick wall in her attempts to get information out of MI6, she focuses on the theory that Gareth's death had nothing to do with his work, but was related to his private life. According to this theory, he died as a result of some kind of BDSM act that went wrong. However difficult this might be for someone who has had any interaction with Gareth, it would really help us if they came forward so we know if that side of his life had any relevance to his death. Given the sensitivity of his work, if it is true that Gareth was gay or had an interest in cross-dressing or bondage, it may have been that he wanted to keep this aspect of his life hidden. He may have been afraid that it exposed him to the threat of blackmail, or more likely, bullying at work, given his views about the culture within MI6. The official position from MI6 is that none of this would have been an issue. Speaking anonymously about the security vetting process, one agent explains, There is no template for what that individual should be or what their lifestyle should be. Individuals have lifestyles and sexual choices or preferences that are perfectly legitimate. In other words, owning women's clothes would not be seen as presenting a security risk. It seems that there may be a simple explanation for why Gareth had bought so many women's clothes. He was just interested in fashion, so much so that he had recently completed two courses in fashion design at Central St. Martin's College. Giving our impressions of Gareth, his tutor at St. Martin's, Cheryl Eastap, described him as somewhat naive and not worldly or streetwise. She says he was nervous and kept apologizing and didn't want any of his friends to know he was attending the course. He certainly kept it secret from his bosses at MI6. From an early age, Gareth's mathematical brilliance had taken his life in a certain direction. His career path had almost been chosen for him. 
But what if his true passion lay elsewhere? What if, secretly, Gareth Williams' dream was to be a fashion designer? Possibly he was afraid that he would be ridiculed for such an aspiration. We know that at the time of his death, Gareth was looking forward to a move back to Cheltenham. Perhaps there were even bigger changes in his life that he was moving towards. At Gareth's flat, police find a cutting he had taken from the Observer newspaper. The article is titled, Top 5 Regrets of the Dying. The regrets include not having the courage to live a life true to myself, express my feelings, and let myself be happier. DCI Sabir and her team keep an open mind as they review the main theories in this complex case. The first set of theories depends on Gareth being alone when he died. Theory 1. Suicide. He got into the bag knowing that he would die from asphyxiation. But it has to be said that there are easier and more obvious ways of killing yourself. Besides, according to his sister, Kerry, he was in good spirits the last time she spoke to him. Yes, he was unhappy at work, but he had already taken steps to fix that. Theory 2. He died accidentally while performing an autoerotic act involving bondage and self-asphyxiation. However, Kerry described Gareth as a scrupulous risk assessor, a view shared by others, including colleagues. Is it really likely that someone like that would have got into the bag without some means of escape? A knife for cutting his way out, for example. Theory 3. Gareth was training himself in escapology. This may seem far-fetched, but Gareth had recently been cleared for active deployment in the field. He may have been acting out scenarios that would require him to find his way out of a tight situation, literally. It may be relevant to this theory that a key to the padlock was found inside the bag with him. The next set of theories involve the presence of a third party. Theory four, he was murdered by a professional hitman sent by a foreign power or a criminal gang whose activities Gareth was investigating. Remember how the central heating had speeded up decomposition? Was that a deliberate ploy by a forensically savvy killer covering their tracks? Theory five, he was murdered by someone within MI6. As shocking as this may seem, at the inquest into Gareth's death in 2012, the coroner will describe it as a legitimate line of inquiry. Theory six, he died accidentally as the result of a BDSM encounter that went wrong. Gareth had occasionally visited bondage websites, but they made up a tiny proportion of his browsing history, and police find no other pornography at his flat. There's no evidence of Gareth hooking up with any sexual partners, whether male or female. Still, this is a possibility they can't exclude. These are the theories. Some of them may seem implausible, but as one detective says, if you can imagine it, then we are investigating it. The question is, how do the theories fit the evidence? If Gareth was alone when he got into the bag, he could only have done so when it was already in the bath. So you would expect 
to find his fingerprints and DNA on the rim as he lowered himself into it. But there are no traces of either, which suggests that someone else placed the bag in the bath with Gareth already inside it. Intriguingly, police find no trace of Gareth's prints or DNA on the bag's padlock or zippers, but they do find fragments of unidentified DNA there, which they believe are from two individuals. They also find traces of Gareth's blood on the outside of the bag. Police also discover the presence of unidentified DNA components on a green towel found in Gareth's kitchen. Even more significantly, a two-millimeter piece of hair found on Gareth's hand contains unidentified DNA. Could this be the most concrete proof yet that someone else was involved in Gareth Williams' death? DCI Sabir and her team rule out the first set of theories which rely on Gareth being alone. She is convinced that someone else was involved in his death. But who? Could it be the mysterious Mediterranean-looking couple police believe visited Gareth before his death? But by February 2011, they still haven't been able to trace them. They now accept it's unlikely they will ever be found. In March 2012, 18 months after Gareth's body was found, Coroner Fiona Wilcox begins the inquest into his death. In her opening statement, Dr. Wilcox expresses her determination to follow the evidence wherever it leads, vowing to hold a full, fair and fearless inquest into this highly controversial death. She will hear from 37 witnesses over five days. A number of these witnesses will give evidence anonymously from behind a screen. They are MI6 agents, including Gareth's line manager, known only as Witness G. As Dr. Wilcox sees it, the question of whether Williams was alive inside the bag and locked it himself is at the very heart of this inquiry. The inquest hears from Peter Folding, an expert in confined spaces. Although he was able to get into an identical bag placed inside a bath, he failed 300 times to close the padlock from inside. He tells the inquest, I couldn't say it's impossible, but I think even Houdini would have struggled with this one. His conclusion? Mr. Williams was either placed in the bag unconscious or he was dead before he was in the bag. The coroner addresses the speculation over Gareth's private life, ruling that any possible interest in bondage or drag queens is irrelevant to his death. She suggests that leaks to the media could have been an attempt by some third party to manipulate a section of the evidence. She doesn't say who this third party might be, but for Gareth's family, suspicion falls on MI6. The agency certainly has some difficult questions to answer. To begin with, why did they take so long to check up on Gareth when he failed to turn up for work? As his sister Kerry puts it, Gareth was like a Swiss clock, very punctual, very efficient, and it was very unlike him not to attend a meeting. But the family suspicions run deeper than that. Their solicitor, Anthony O'Toole, argues, the impression of the family is that the unknown third party was a member of some agency specializing in the dark arts of the Secret Service, or 
evidence has been removed post-mortem by experts in those dark arts. So, was there a forensic cleanup after Gareth's death? The coroner clearly believes so. She describes the complete absence of hand and footprints in Gareth's bathroom as significant, noting, if Gareth had been carrying out some kind of peculiar experiment, he wouldn't care if he left any foot or fingerprints. It would also have been physically impossible for him to wipe clean any prints after he had got inside the bag. The inquest also hears that an iPhone found in Gareth's flat had been restored to its factory settings, wiping out all its data. Naturally, this could have been done by Gareth before his death, or by a third party wanting to remove any evidence of contact. The coroner is scathing in her criticism of SO15, the Met Department responsible for liaising between Scotland Yard detectives and MI6. Shockingly, it emerges that SO15 failed to notify DCI Sabir of potentially crucial evidence found at Gareth's office in MI6. Nine memory sticks and a black holdall have only just been handed over to detectives. The revelation almost derails the inquest. MI6 is criticised too, principally for failing in its duty of care towards Gareth. In the coroner's opinion, the agency neglected to make even the most basic inquiries of his whereabouts and welfare. Mistakes were also made by the private company responsible for analysing DNA material. One sample had been wrongly marked as unidentified, suggesting the presence of a third party, when in fact it should have been ruled out altogether because it came from one of the investigators. For Gareth's family, all these lapses and oversights only add to their pain. Summing up, Dr. Wilcox says, most of the fundamental questions in relation to how Gareth died remain unanswered. She agrees with pathologists that the most likely cause of death was carbon dioxide suffocation, which would have occurred within three minutes of Gareth getting inside the holdall. An undetected, fast-acting poison may also have been involved. Dr. Wilcox rules out suicide and autoerotic asphyxiation, saying that she was sure that a third party moved the bag containing Gareth into the bath. She concludes, The cause of his death was unnatural and likely to have been criminally mediated. I am therefore satisfied that on the balance of probabilities, Gareth was killed unlawfully. Speaking after the inquest, Metropolitan Police Commissioner Bernard Hogan Howe announces a forensic review into the handling of the case, to be led by Detective Chief Superintendent Hamish Campbell, head of Homicide Command. Hogan Howe is known for his short fuse and makes no effort to hide his anger at the unacceptable breakdown in communications between Scotland Yard and MI6. He places the blame squarely at SO15's door. From now on, things will be different. Homicide detectives will be able to speak to MI6 personnel directly without having to go through SO15. He expects the ongoing investigation to include DNA screening of MI6 agents, 
the implication clearly being that they are suspects. When asked how he will ensure MI6's cooperation, Hogan Howe replies tersely, It's the law. The locked room mystery is a staple of classic crime fiction. But as a locked bag mystery, the case of Gareth Williams presents an even greater challenge to any detective, whether fictional or real. The coroner's finding that Gareth was most likely killed by a third party was based on her belief that it was impossible for him to have closed the padlock that held the bag zippers together from inside the hold door. But not long after the inquest, a retired sergeant in the Royal Artillery, Jim Fanshawe, approaches the police, claiming to have pulled off exactly that feat. He shows how it is possible to zip up the bag from the inside and click the padlock closed by manipulating it through the fabric of the bag with his fingers. All that remains is to push out with his body so that the two zippers are squeezed together. There is no proof that this is what Gareth did, but it does show that something previously thought impossible is, in fact, possible. In November 2013, Detective Assistant Commissioner Martin Hewitt calls a press briefing at New Scotland Yard. He is finally ready to announce the findings of a major three-year investigation into Gareth Williams' death. Hewitt tells the assembled reporters that, despite all of this considerable effort, it is still the case that there is insufficient evidence to be definitive on the circumstances that led to Gareth's death. He admits that he cannot rule out the involvement of a third party. However, his detectives have been unable to find proof of this. For that reason, he concludes that Gareth most likely died alone. This obviously contradicts the finding of the coroner's inquest in 2012. Hewitt's answer to this is, The coroner drew an inference. I am now drawing a different inference. For Gareth's family, this is a devastating blow. They are convinced that the police have got it wrong and the coroner's original verdict remains correct. The police may have closed the case, but it's not quite the end of the story. In 2015, a Russian defector named Boris Karpichkov tells the Mirror newspaper that Moscow intelligence sources had confirmed to him that Gareth Williams was killed by an SVR assassin. SVR is the modern-day KGB. According to Karpichkov, the Russians had tried to blackmail Gareth into becoming a double agent by threatening to expose his alleged cross-dressing. Gareth refused, naively revealing that he knew the identity of a Russian mole within GCHQ. That was the reason why he had to die. Karpichkov may have been trying to impress the security services by making out that he had valuable information about a controversial case. But his account contains nothing concrete that wasn't already in the public domain. And speaking in 2021, retired Detective Chief Superintendent Hamish Campbell tells the Sunday Times, He was a phone analyst, an expert in terms of mobile phones and the transference of data. What would the Russians or any other state have achieved by killing him? 
It seems that Karpichkov's claim was not taken seriously by police. Over the course of the investigation, a number of DNA traces were recovered from Gareth's flat. Analysis at the time proved inconclusive. But recent advances in the science of DNA mean that today's experts may well be able to get results from samples that, just a few years ago, yielded nothing. The tiny fragment of hair found on Gareth's hand is of particular interest. In 2013, the hair would have provided insufficient DNA material for results. Not so anymore. In an interview with the Sunday Times in February 2021, Hamish Campbell calls for the hair and the green towel found in the kitchen to be retested using the latest methods. In response, a police spokesman says, the Metropolitan Police Service fully investigated the death of Gareth Williams, which was also subject to a coroner's inquest. However, just four months later, in June 2021, that decision is reversed. The Met announces that it will reopen the investigation into Gareth Williams' death after all. As yet, we do not know the final outcome. Next time on Scotland Yard Confidential. In Deptford, London, in 1905, a burglary gone wrong ends in a brutal double murder. The culprits escape with a pocket full of money and blood on their hands. But it's what they leave behind that makes this case so significant in Scotland Yard's history. A single thumbprint on the cash box they robbed. The fingerprint department at Scotland Yard is only four years old and has yet to secure a murder conviction using a latent print. With three Scotland Yard heavyweights at the helm of the investigation, could this be the chance they need to validate this nascent technique and get their first ever murder conviction from fingerprint evidence? First, they'll need to find out just whose print it is. Scotland Yard Confidential is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Warrow for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Series consultant, Roger Morris. Written by Roger Morris. Hosted by me, John Hopkins. Supervising editor, Kevin Pham. Sound design by Matthias Torres-Sole. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plum. Mixmaster by Kian Ryan Morgan. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley.